It's on the job, the podcast all about making your working life better. And welcome to the first edition for 2023 and the start of our summer series where we have listened back to some of the conversations we had last year. They're worth hearing again. This one certainly is. In July of 2022, Professor Joseph E. Stiglitz came to Australia. Professor Stiglitz is one of the world's great thinkers on economics. He won the 2001 Nobel Prize for his groundbreaking work in the area. And he's a huge defender of workers' rights and the campaign to push back on neoliberalism and free markets, which have for so long put workers under enormous pressure right around the world. Here is my conversation with Professor Joseph E. Stiglitz. On the Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rung. Professor Stiglitz, welcome to Melbourne. How are you? Great. It's very nice to be back here in Melbourne again. So thrilled to have you. Let's start with a big picture question. This generation looks like it might be the first generation in a long time to inherit living standards below that of their parents. And that's not the promise we offered them. So how did we get here? Well, that's a big question. But if I were to give a, a short answer, it's we've had 40 years of neoliberalism, the faith that religion almost, ideology, that markets would solve all problems. We got our economy out of kilter, out of balance. We devalued the importance of unions, of government, of other forms of collective organization. And the result of that blind faith was things didn't turn out the way everybody was told. There was supposed to be faster growth and shared prosperity. We got slower growth, and all the gains went to a relatively few people at the top. So during the pandemic, the start of the pandemic, suddenly everybody had a conversion to Keynesianism. They wanted to spend money, they wanted to spend government money, they weren't afraid of debt to try to keep the economy ticking over and to save this neoliberal project from crashing completely. Now that we're getting through it, suddenly we're back to telling workers they can't have pay rises and to tighten their belts. Which one is the right way to go? <laughs> well, I mean, it was clear that without government assistance, we would have had a disaster. And that really serves to highlight what I just said earlier, that government needs to play an important role. We saw that in the global financial crisis, we saw it actually in saving us from this terrible scourge. It was government investment in the United States and a few other countries in the mRNA platform that got us the vaccines. And it was enormous government money that got the vaccines out into our arms. So we turn to government always when we have a disaster whether it's an economic disaster or it's a now a climate disaster, or in this case, a, a pandemic. What we need to do now is to realize the wisdom of what we saw in the pandemic and not ask workers to take a huge wage cut. What is so disturbing, what's happened in, you know, the monks as uh, the pandemic has come to an end, is the extent to which profit margins have gone up. There's been a huge redistribution going on. And those who are already well off are the big beneficiaries. This is part of the neoliberal project, isn't it? And it has been all the way along because privatization was supposed to be a benefit for ordinary people. The promise was it would drive efficiencies, it would open up competitiveness and drive down costs. 
But we're dealing with a largely privatised economy that's delivering inflation and low wages. And that's right. It, it really didn't deliver uh, on what it was promised. Uh, there are, I don't know, all the details of the Australian economy. There may be some particular instances where privatization may have worked. But by and large, overall, it's been a miserable failure. No, you don't know how bad things are because <laughs> things are worse in the United States. So we pushed a lot of these ideas a lot further. And the result of that is we have much more inequality. Life expectancy, can you believe this? Life expectancy is before the pandemic was going down. And now, you know, it's much lower than it was uh, seven, eight years ago. So really this agenda has not been working except for those at the very top. So let's talk about that. Inflation is running at uh, a level we haven't seen for decades and it will continue to grow, we are told. Workers are expected to not ask for pay rises commensurate with the growth in inflation. And uh, that means a real pay cut for workers as a solution to our economic problems. If you were in charge of the Treasury, if you were in, in the, the hot seat, what would you be doing to deal with the inflation problem at the moment? And what would be the best outcome for workers? Well, there are three things I think that I would do. I mean, this is by and large a supply side problem. And uh, it's uh, high food prices, high energy prices, a shortage of chips, <laughs> and a shortage of labor. And once you recognize what the problem is, it leads you naturally to think, well, that's the problem. Why don't we try to work on the problem? So let's try to get a lot more energy out there, green energy. We've had in the past huge surpluses of food. We pay farmers, at least in the United States, uh, not to farm. Yep. Let's try to engage in supply side measures in the United States. And I think your government is doing this now. Let's help women go back to work by giving them better childcare. Maybe let's have better immigration policies uh, if we have a shortage of labor. So. Let's first do a diagnosis of what the, the problem is and try to match the solution to the problem. Raising interest rates is not going to get more food, more energy, and so it's not going to bring down those prices. What I worry about is the focus on the wrong solution. There will be continued inflation. Interest rates could continue to go up until you get a serious recession. And that will make workers uh, even worse off. Lower wages are a bad thing. Yep. No job is even worse. So that's the first thing. The second thing that I would do is protect workers. And a windfall profit tax on the energy companies that are making so much money, not because of anything they did, but because of the war in Ukraine. Uh, why should they be rewarded for something that Putin did. You know, and the same thing about food prices. So these people who are making bundles out of these adverse circumstances should be taxed and that money used to protect workers who are being really hurt by what is going on. And there's a third thing. I think there are a whole set of policies to try to curb corporations taking advantage of their market power and a lot of market power over the long run when you need stronger competition laws but in the short run you can use tax policy say 
if you raise prices faster than your cost, you're going to pay a higher tax rate. And let's incentivize, let's use market incentives. But this time, in the right way, having incentives to pay workers more and to stop price gouging. It all makes great sense. But in this country, and I'm sure it's the same in your country, tax is a dirty word. So to in the political square, to win that public argument that tax can actually be a benefit to tax with a super profits tax or tax those uh, huge price rises, actually a net benefit to the community. How do we get that conversation started again in the wider community so people do not fear a tax rise as inherently against their interest? Because it seems that the more tax cuts we have for lots of people are voting against their own self-interest when they do so. You know, first, in this context, I would frame this as a temporary. We have a crisis. Let's face it. We have something we haven't had probably ever, a pandemic, a war in Ukraine. So we're facing a new situation when the facts on the ground change, your policies ought to change. And that's not necessarily a meaning a permanent change in policy, but we have a crisis and we need to respond to that crisis. And that change means you change your policy. So that's the first point. It, it doesn't mean that we've totally abandoned the way of thinking that we had in the past, but at least we ought to be responding to the current situation. But I think over the longer term, I think we have to make the case more strongly that that neoliberal agenda, that just lowering taxes, and that means lowering public services is not working. It has, it's not led to faster growth. You pointed out it's the first time that this generation is going to be worse off than the last generation. And in many ways, I think, we ought to be thinking that the 21st century involves changes in our economy that are going to require more public investments mm. because we're moving into an innovation economy, into a economy where education is going to be more important, uh, infrastructure, but both the hard infrastructure, but I, what I call the soft infrastructure, childcare mm. is going to be more important. Research is so important for the innovation economy. So when you put it all together, you realize the restructuring, the 21st century economy is going to be an economy where collective action, government, is going to need to take on a larger role. And you have to pay for it. It's put it as simple as that. Can I ask nothing's you, free in life. Nothing's free. Can I ask you about unions and labor rights and collective action and how important that is to the future of workers and the next generation of workers as well, that we maintain that collective identity to work together for better outcomes? Well, one of the things that research in the United States and around the world has shown is that in recent decades, there's been an increase in market power. The power of corporations has increased and the power of workers has decreased. And that imbalance is part of why wages are not keeping up with inflation. Again, not as bad here as in the United States. It may make you feel a little better <laughs> that uh, real wages in the United States are the same level as they were 65 years ago. I mean, it's just amazing. Median income is stagnating for more than four decades. So you should feel a little better that things 
could be worse, but they don't have to be this way. And, and the only way they're going to change is to get a better balance. And what do I mean by better balance? Well, on the one hand, we have to curb the market power of corporations. That means better competition law uh, uh, enforcement. But on the other hand, we've strangled workers. Uh, we've strangled workers working together. Cooperation, collective action, and that's really what unions are about. Got to finish with a couple of questions for our cousins in New Zealand who are doing a lot of work in this area too. They're implementing a, a new system of sector-wide collective bargaining called fair pay agreements. Uh, this system is an idea of a multi-employer or sector collective bargaining to help improve wages and conditions. Is that the sort of model that you think could work in the long term to improve the situation for workers? Yes, very much so. A few years ago with a large group of uh, my colleagues in Europe, I wrote a book called Rewriting the Rules of the European Economy. And we focus a little bit on the same kinds of questions that you've been raising. And one of the things that we argued for there was more uh, what they call it in Europe, sectoral bargaining. When you get such opposition to this from employers, you begin to suspect the reason for the opposition is Maybe it'll work. <laughs> Maybe it will enhance the bargaining power of workers and level the bargaining. You're onto level something. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing they are doing is uh, exploring a public uninsurance system, which uh, is something that uh, will benefit the economy as a whole as well, won't it? Yeah. Unemployment insurance is really important. You know, one of my concerns in America is we've had very weak unemployment insurance. Mm low coverage, low, we call replacement rate, badly designed. So I think a well-designed unemployment insurance is sort of a basic part of security. And security is a very important part of well-being. And we have to remember <laughs> the economy is supposed to deliver well-being of ordinary citizens. <laughs> uh, it's not that workers are supposed to make for a good economy. A good economy is supposed to make for the well-being of, of everybody. Just to finish, Professor Stiglitz, let's finish on a note of optimism. Is there something that you see on the horizon for ordinary workers and people that we should be excited about, that there, there is hope for us, even though we are living in a world full of these problems? Well, maybe this is a little bit of negative way. Things have gotten so bad that there is a little bit of an uprising. You see it in the United States in the case of where unions have been decimated, where there have been several votes that in support of unionization in Amazon, which has been ruthless against mm -hmm. workers and the working conditions are, are really terrible. I, I, you know, I can tell from people I know who work in those places. So the fact that we have begun to realize that neoliberalism, a 40-year experiment across the whole advanced countries, has failed, is at least hope for me that we'll begin to think about what is an alternative. And in that alternative, we have to have a better balance. And part of that better balance is a stronger voice for workers and unions are the institutional way we provide for that stronger voice for workers. Professor Stiglitz, it's been a real pleasure and honor to have you with us. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. 
Professor Joseph E. Stiglitz, the winner of the 2001 Nobel Prize in Conversation earlier in 2022, July 25, 2022, the first of our summer series here on The Job. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. We'll have another one for you next week. Have a great week and bye for now.